0: Well, good morning. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. And if you need to hear that again, let me say it as clear as I can. You are loved. We could have all stood theologically when Melissa asked for the orphans and the those connected to orphan ministry to stand up because in a very real sense, one of the most and most probably the most poignant and the most picturesque of the images for salvation is that of adoption that God in your life has adopted you. You were not a natural-born son of Abraham, but he came to you, and as a Gentile, he rescued you out of the orphanage of your sin and brought you into his family. So you are loved. Now if you come here today with a heavy heart, maybe not feeling love, not, not acknowledging that, maybe you're, you're stuck in some place in life, whether in a sin, a hurt, a habit, you're stuck. Today is a day when if you turn with Him, with your whole heart, down deep, not wanting a Band-Aid fix, but wanting change from within, He says, come to Him. He doesn't say, work harder. The good news of Christ is not, work harder. It's that song that we just sang. Come to Him. Come to the altar. Do you know where the altar of the Christian life is? We have not set this building up as if this were an altar. No scripture in the New Testament says that a church Front, a stage, or even a pulpit is an altar. The Bible teaches that the altar is the heart. And so God wants to deal down deep in the place in your life where sin resides, and that is in your heart. At the heart of every problem is a heart problem. And He wants to meet you down there. Hosea chapter 6 will address that level of repentance. You know, the book of Hosea, if you're joining us for the first time, Uh, Hosea has been a great teaching tool to help us to understand a little bit more of where our nation is, where we are. Um, The nation of Israel has been unfaithful, but God has been unfailing in his life, in his love, in his care. And in his faithfulness, he doesn't brush their sin and their shame and their destruction underneath a rug. He deals with it. In the previous chapters, The accused, Israel, this ten nation uh, lost tribe are going to go into obscurity. They're going to be judged. He gives them the court case. He makes them stand and hear the ruling, and it is that of death. It's a death sentence. We've explored the death throes of a nation that's dying. Israel dies before God, and God in his judicial um, punishment says, I'm going to let this be. I'm going to let you have the things, you want Assyria, you want foreign gods, you want foreign wives, I'm going to let you have them. And in so doing, that very thing that they wanted became their punishment. You say, you want your will to be done? Well, I'm going to let you have it. And in that process, it seems in chapter 6 that they have some repentance. But don't jump to conclusions too quick, because as it is read, as the, as the chapter 6 and 7 unfold. They are not true in their repentance. In chapter 7, verse 10, it will say, They do not return to the Lord nor seek him. In verse 13 of chapter 7, it says, They have spoken lies against me. And in chapter 7, verse 16, it says, They return but not to the Most High. They don't return upward. So this text, Hosea 6 and Hosea 7, is shallow repentance, false repentance. For some of you, you have come to God with the same issue over and over and over. And nothing has stuck, right? It hasn't worked. And you still want a pragmatic answer. Well, today you're going to get a theological answer. We're going to diagnose why it's shallow and why shallow repentance doesn't work. So we're going we're to attack this text with that kind of ferocity. I am the one on trial, all right? I'm looking at my life and I'm saying and seeing where am I not letting God go deep? And every one of us has an area where that's the case. Why? Because you're not sinless and you haven't arrived and we're all in process. When you become a Christian, you hang a God at work sign on your heart and you are in process. And so often it's the shallow repentance that keeps God from doing what he really really wants to do. So, in chapter 5, we saw God is like a lion, and he has pounced and killed Israel, and has, like the lion does, he has dragged her off. Of course, the tool that he uses is Assyria. Assyria is, in chapter 6, about to pounce and drag the carcass into the cave. Okay? So, in that statement of pain, they look at it, and it seems that they sincerely repent until you read the rest of it. Uh, there's something wrong with this confession. I heard a, heard a story, I've used it before, it always makes me chuckle. A man uh, was feeling guilty about cheating on his IRS tax returns, so he sent a check to the IRS, and in the check he sent a note, and it said, I feel so guilty for cheating on my taxes, I had to send you this check, and if I don't feel any better, I'll send you the rest." right? There's something wrong with that confession. And there's something wrong with this confession. Confession, you can see it from the first verse. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. Oh, that sounds good. Let's go back to God. Let's go back to church service. Let's go back to Bible study. Let's go back and try prayer again. Let's return. Why? Why repent? Why turn? Look at their reasoning. See if you can see what's wrong with this confession. For he has torn us, that's true, like a lion, chapter 5, he's torn us. But he will heal us, he has wounded us. In chapter 5 we saw that what God was like, he was like an incurable wound to them. He was going to fester them from within because of their rebellion. And their hope is that he would heal them. And it says that, but he will bandage us. What's wrong with that? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The problem with that. Is that they are more interested in healing than they are cleansing. That's your first point. Should be on the screen. They are more concerned for healing than cleansing. They saw their nation in difficulty and they wanted God to make things right. But they did not come with a broken heart and a surrendered will. How many times have you done that? I know I've done that a lot. I want the quick fix. I want happiness, not holiness. I want... Comfort, not character change. I want my change of my circumstance, not my change of character. Many times in my own ministry, personally and in so many others that have come to me, they, they are looking for God to be a celestial lifeguard, to throw them a lifesaver. Deliver, deliver them from danger, not deliver them from their sin. Because they recognize, if they're theologically illumined, they recognize that the sin problem is inside, not without But they've hoarded and they've hided and they've pretended. And so they don't want God to deal with that. They shed more tears over remorse from their suffering than they do over remorse for their sin. And that is not where God wants them. Verse 2, how long will all this take? Israel, you got an idea of what God wants to do in your life? How long is that going to take? Look at verse 2. He will revive us in two days. He will raise us up on the third day. That's how quick it will happen. That we may live before him. What's wrong with that confession? Well, they are more interested in a quick fix than in something that would stick. If you knew that the problem that you had would require a decade to really deal with it, would you be okay with that? That for you to deal with that demon, for you to deal with that boogeyman in the closet, for you to deal with that disabilitating fear of failure or fear of rejection, that it would take 15 years of trials and tribulation for God to dig down deep. Are you open to that? Deep cleansing? Let me read it again. Look at the blind optimism. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live with him. They were like so many false prophets in Jeremiah's day who offered the nation superficial remedies. But it never got to the heart of the problem. <clears throat> they, were, they were like physicians trying to put suntan lotion on a tumor. Instead of dealing with the heart surgery, the, the deep surgery, the drastic surgery that it took. Expecting a quick fix is one of the marks of an unrepentant heart that doesn't want to pay the price for deep cleansing. But if God really loves you, he is not an enabler. If God really loves you, he is not one who wants to put a band-aid on a bleeding artery or suntan lotion on a tumor. Too many so many years ago there was an article in a newspaper about a real man named Al Johnson, he was a Kansas man, and he had given his life to Christ. He came to faith in Christ. And what makes his story so remarkable is after, it wasn't his conversion, it was the fact that after his conversion, he had deep desire for cleansing, and he confessed uh, to, the, to the police that he had in his teenage years robbed a bank. And the statute of limitations was too long, and so uh, it, it, he couldn't be tried for that, but in repentance... In, in uh, complete and total change of heart, he not only confessed the crime, he voluntarily repaid his part of the stolen money. Now, that is total reconstruction of the heart. Where the altar is not a Sunday morning, the altar is your heart. And you say, God says to you, don't try harder. He says, come to me. And in this case, he comes to you and inside and does the deep cleansing. So, verse 3. So let us know. God, come on, let us know. When when is this all going to happen? We only, we got two or three days. I'm coming to you with my problems and um, I know, I know you invented time, but I got to watch and I'm going to time you on how fast you'll get me out of my problem. Deliver us from my evil that I've caused and do it quickly. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. That sounds good. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. What is this? God, you are, you work like a clock. This is karma. This is, I'll do this act of repentance and God, instantly you're gonna start divvying up the gumballs out of the gumball machine. Can that ever happen? Where you come to God with your black cloud of whatever and you say, God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. See, they mostly hear, are seeing forgiveness and restoration as a mechanical thing. That's what karma is. It's mechanical. You go to a church service. You go and you give money. Hey, I put I put $100 in the plate, so I ought to get $100 of remedy and rescue. Man, I even endured a prayer service. I even went and worked at Habitat for Humanity. That ought to be good something for my house. You, God, are gonna be my fix. A mechanical thing was was that which, what they wanted, they wanted a mechanical thing, but it didn't guarantee a relational issue, a relational matter that involved them getting right with God, and it's not mechanical. To paraphrase Hosea 6, verse 3, if we seek him, his blessings are sure to come just as the dawn comes each morning and the rains come each spring and winter. And you hear that and you say, what's wrong with that? Sounds good to my ears. Isn't God consistently faithful? The problem with this is it's formula religion. It's it's getting a candy bar out of a vending machine. You put money in, you push the button, and boop, out comes the snickers. God is not some divine snicker giver. That sounds fun. The Christian life is a relationship with God, and relationships aren't based upon cut and dried formulas. Look at the rest of verse 3. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain. Watering the earth, he repeats rain. God, you are rain. Of course, they've been worshiping at the fertility god Baal's place, and now they're coming back to him and saying, oh, you're the one who brings the rain. These are religious words without righteous deeds. They are mainly leaning on words, and there's no righteous deeds connected to it. When we truly repent, our words will come from a broken heart and they will cost us something. Hosea considered words to be, and we see this in Hosea 14 at the end of the book, verse 2. He, he considers spiritual words to include spiritual sacrifices. That words are spiritual sacrifices. They, we must not give him something cheap. Words can either reveal or they can conceal. Depending on where your heart is. Either in humility and honesty or in hiding and dishonesty. So shallow confession, that diagnoses it, four things there. Now, where is all this coming from? At the heart of every problem is a heart problem. They have a heart problem. They have a character problem. They have shallow confession because they have shallow character. This is the nation's true condition. In a series of vivid similes, I know you haven't taken English in a while. Some of you students know what a simile is. Right, similes and metaphor, what's the difference? One starts with like and the other doesn't have the word like. He's going to use the word like a lot. He says, your heart is like. He's going to give some ones that are pretty picturesque. So let's, let's look into this. You know, as, as, as a counselor of marriage, often I talk about a particular book called The Language of Love. Not to be confused with the five love languages, a different book. The Language of Love, the whole book, is about word pictures. That when you really want to get something across to the person you love, and you're just, they're speaking German, you're speaking French, you are you have a failure to communicate that one of the great ways you can do it to get them to feel the heart of what you're trying to say is paint a word picture. And so God here is going to give us a bunch of them. So let's go through them. All right, The language of love. Verse 4 of chapter 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Notice it's a divine monologue. God's speaking here. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim in the north? What shall I do with you, Judah in the south? For your loyalty is like, here it is, ready? A morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. I get a picture of this every morning at our house out on in Sour Lake. We, we got some acreage there and got some grass. And uh, first week or two, I would go out, I put on my nice boots or my my Doc Martens and I go out there to go feed or do whatever, and they would be covered with water and covered in dirt because the grass would hold, it does, every morning it holds a ton of dew. On my day off a few weeks back, I, I, I went out there, had to put, I had to put on mud boots every morning. But by about 10 o'clock, I can take them off because it's Southeast Texas and we have black gumbo dirt. And that water is gone by 10 a.m., clockwork. It's temporary. That's what he's saying here. You're not really repenting. You just want some temporary fix. It's let's make a deal. Remember that TV show? Verse five, therefore I have hewn them in pieces. I've cut them in pieces by the prophet. That's what prophets. I sent the prophets so that they could wake up that this is not some small, shallow, temporary issue. This is deep and I'm looking for a lasting solution. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Have you had that experience in a church service where I or some pastor or some devotion that you've given just slays you, convicts you, brings you low? That's how God works. He, he, he works often to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. If you came in here comforted, he says, you are not, I'm not done with you. I'm not going to, I love you too much to let you kind of skirt by and, and coast by. I'm not done with you. And so, verse 5, I want to warn you, scare you to turn you back. And you would do it in that case, but they did not. Verse 5 goes on, and the judgments are on you, on you are like the light that comes forth. I gave you my word, and then I gave you judgment. And it was meant to be a spotlight. The very place I'm judging you shows how off you are. Pain is to the body, what guilt is to the soul. And i Gave you guilt and you ignored it. And I gave you judgment and you ignored it. Here is what I want. Verse 6, God says, for I delight in hesed. That word we've seen almost every sermon in this series. I want hesed. What is that? I want loyalty. I want loyal love. I don't want a half-hearted follower. I don't want a fan. I want a... True believer, lover. I want I want it to be clear that you're married to me and you're not married to anything else. I want loyalty rather than sacrifice. I don't want your religion. I don't want your token gifts. I don't want you giving me a tip in the plate that comes by. I don't want you giving me some token prayer meeting. I want loyalty. I want hesed love. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want you to know me. I want burnt offerings. I want you to respond like Naaman. You remember Naaman in the Bible? Book of Judges? Great, great story. One of my favorite in the book of Judges. Naaman is a foreign general. And he, they, they capture a slave girl from Israel. And the slave girl notices that the general has come down with leprosy. And the slave girl who they captured and stole says, you know in Israel the true God lives and there's a prophet and they will heal you of your leprosy if you go there. And so ben the II, the king, says to the general, Naaman, you can go. And Naaman comes down, and he goes to Elisha and his assistant named Gehazi. And he comes to Elisha, and, and he, he talks with him, and he says, hey, I, I, you can heal me, I can heal you. Here, why don't I give you some money? And you say, I'm not gonna take your money. And he says, well, what do I have to do? He's starting shallow. I think we all start a little shallow. We, we start swimming in the shallow end of the repentance pond. And he says, just tell me what to do. And he says, well, just go wash in the Jordan. Your leprosy will go away. He says, that old muddy river, we have great rivers up in Damascus and in the north. Let me, just tell me to go up there. That's a better, right? Add a little more flair to it. That's too simple. And Elisha says, I'm done. And Gehazi comes to him in a moment of brilliance. And he says, he said, if, if Elisha had told you to do something difficult, you'd have been okay with it. But Elisha tells you to get cured you got to do something simple, and you're not okay with it? That doesn't make any sense. Light bulb comes on. Naaman has a full repentance. And how do you tell? Because in the next verse, he says again, hey, hey, can I give you a bunch of money? And Elisha, like Paul and Silas in the book of Acts, they say, we're not going to take your money. Paul and Silas from the sorcerers who came, we're not going to take your money. Other men of God say, we're not going to take your money. He wants to pay him. He says, well, here, at least give me two donkey loads of dirt. I mean, this is such a big deal. Let me take dirt from the Jordan River. That's how powerful that Jordan is. And let me go and take it back to the north, and I'll use that as my little bit of Israel, right? And he doesn't say yes to that. He says, well, okay, here, I have old King. He's old. I mean, he's got arthritis. He's had knee replacement, hip replacement. He's just, he's like bionic man. He can barely move. And when he goes to worship his false god, Hinnon, when he goes to, sorry, Remen, when the old man goes to worship his false god in his temple, Remen, he, he, he can't quite get down to knee to kneel. And so I've, I could go back and I could be your ambassador and I could help him kneel. And when he kneels, I'll bow. And then maybe you could reach him with this good news of salvation and the true God. Oh, that's a clean, pure, sensitive conscience. He says, I lost my leprosy. Can I gain an ambassadorship? Huge. This is, this is Zacchaeus. This is the kind of reaction you get from Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Hey, Jesus comes to him and he says, hey, before you come to my house, let me go clean house. I got some things I got to get straight. Half of what I owe, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've done anybody wrong, if I've cheated or stolen, I'm going to pay him back. How many times? You know your Bible? How many times? Four. All right." Remember Matthew, the tax collector? Another tax collector that Jesus goes to and reaches for his name? Matthew, and coming to faith, he says, hey, I want a total repentance of everything in my life. Can I get all my tax-cheating buddies and all my wicked prostitute friends and my drug lords? And can I get them all and can we all go and meet at my house? And Jesus, you come and win them with this good news you have? Can I throw a sinner's party? And Jesus, you come. That's repentance. Who said this? Here's another great, full, total repentance. Who said this? Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Who said that? Ruth to Naomi. Ruth, a Gentile woman, Naaman, a Gentile man, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, Matthew, a tax collector. That's what God wants. Total repentance, where you take all that you have, all that you stood for, and you say it's all yours. Take it, use it, mold it, make it what you want it to be. Verse 7, but no, like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. They weren't Naaman. They weren't Ruth. They weren't Zacchaeus. They weren't Matthew. They, they were half hearted. Like Adam. Do you recognize God is a creationist? He believes that Adam was a real person. You know, in our day and age, probably only about 20% of churches in America believe that Adam and Eve were real people. God believed that Adam and Eve believes Adam and Eve was a real person. Anyway, side note. <laughs> Brilliant, I know. There they have dealt treacherously against me. They broke the covenant. They deal treacherously against, this is moral rebellion. They have no apologies. God promised Adam his blessings if he obeyed his commandments. And what did Adam do? He made a beeline for that tree. He deliberately disobeyed. Israel did the same thing. Israel had a covenant in Deuteronomy 28 that if they obeyed, they get to stay in the promised land. But they deliberately ran after these other gods, broke the covenant. Verse 8. Gilead, looking now to the other side of the Jordan, is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. They're a bunch of thieves and murderers, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. They probably had this story. Somebody, some priests, got together and killed some people. They, he's probably pointing to something that actually happened in their day. Some priests. These surely they have committed crime. The, these law. Officers were the ones killing. These guys who were supposed to be the the law enforcers were a band of murderers. What do I do with that, God says. Verse 10, in the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. So verse 10 is the north. Verse 11 is the south. These all 12 tribes have a harvest. You know what a harvest is, right? What do you do at the harvest? The crop's ready to come in and chop it down. Right? I'm gonna cut you down. Both Israel and Judah had an appointment. You're gonna reap what you sowed. So, what is the first image? It's that of the morning dew and the morning cloud. He says, I want Hesed, and all you give me is this whisper of love. You are a fickle fan, and I'm not looking for fickle fans. I want deep hearted lovers. And the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God, every time there is worship, is hovering to and fro, looking for hearts that are truly His. Is that you today? Maybe that didn't get you. Try the second image on for size, verse, two, or verse uh, 1 of the next chapter. Notice I didn't read the last phrase of chapter 6, because I think 611, that last phrase, I think it should go with chapter 7, verse 1. You're thinking, how can you rewrite Scripture? You know that the scripture chapters and verses are not in the original text. Do you know that? The verse chapter numbers and the verse references are not in the inerrant original autographs. All right, so I think it fits best. The end of verse 11 fits best with the first verse of chapter 7. So let me read it that way. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the monologue continues. He says, I want to heal, I want to restore. But he's going to say, you're you're an overheated oven. That's your next blank there. You're an over, your lust is like an overheated oven. His, His struggle, he wants to do something, but they are coming on their terms. They wanted him to act on their terms, not according to the conditions of his covenant. He longs to restore, but their true repentance can only come on his conditions, and they don't want it. As painful as their day is. We saw last week, they had assault from within through civil war. They had assault from without through the Assyrians and then the Assyrians. In spite of all their pain, God couldn't fix them because they would not turn to him on his terms. The iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. The evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. They lie and they cheat. The thief enters in. Bandits raid outside. Everywhere I go, verse 1 says, everywhere I go, I look to heal them, but I can't because there's no repentance. They're giving me lip service, but I want life service. I gotta deal with the heart, and they're just throwing out Band-Aids and token religious acts. Verse two, here's here's why they did this. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. I want you to wake up here. We have such a quick thought that when we do something evil, when we do something wicked, that God is some impersonal force that doesn't notice. Here he says, you, you don't remember that I remember. And I see there is no such thing as a private moment. Even in your brain, I can see your thoughts. And they are wicked. There's, what is it? There's no fear of God. They think he's a mere force. They did not believe that God was a person. He saw He recorded, his eyes narrowed, he grew in his anger at the things that they did. God is not some impersonal yin and yang. He's not some impersonal scales in the sky. You go to a courthouse and they have blind lady justice in the scales. Most people think that that's the good and the bad that a person does. That is not how God works. That's not how our justice system works. Seems like every time I go on the prison weekend that we're pushing for here in a couple of weeks. Love to have you go with me. As a, as a man, we're gonna go into the state prison, Gist, and we're gonna share the gospel. And I will all, almost always point out that these criminals, when they were judged and, and brought to trial and they, and they were declared guilty, it didn't matter how many times they helped the little old grandma all across the street or how many times they remembered their mama's birthday, they don't consider that. All they consider, the scales of justice, are the preponderance of evidence, that's all it is. Is the evidence weighing heavy that you did this or not? If you kill somebody, it does you no good to go up there and talk about how many times you went to Sunday school, how many times you paid your taxes on time, that does you no good. Maybe in the sentencing part of it, but not in the guilt part of it. You're either guilty or not. We think God's like that, he kind of weighs up the evidence That's not how our judicial system works and that's not how God works. He is the person of God and he has a name and his name is Yahweh. Do you know what the name Yahweh means? Do you know what the name Yahweh means? It means I am. I am who I am. I've always been who I am. I'll always be who I am. I do not change. My ways do not change. Now their deeds are all around them. They do not remember that I do not change, and I do I remember they are before my face. Verse 2 ends. I see them. Everything they've done, I see them. David kills Uriah, and the Bible says there is evil that has been done in the sight of God. Cain comes to Abel and he says, Come out in the field where no one can see. And he murders him. And God says to him, Where's your brother? Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? God says, Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. I see what you do. Elijah says to Gehazi, Gehazi, remember that assistant? Elisha and Naaman and Gehazi. Gehazi was Elisha's assistant. Elisha wouldn't take the money from Naaman when he healed him of his leprosy, but Gehazi snuck up as, as Naaman's going back up north. Gehazi catches up with him, kind of like an old Western. Gets on his horse and he rides up and he says, I'll take your money. He changed his mind. He lies about Elisha. Elisha wants your money now. Naaman loses his leprosy and guess who gets his leprosy? Gehazi. Naaman gains an ambassadorship. Gehazi loses his ministry. And it says, Elisha says to Gehazi, where have you been, Gehazi? Gehazi starts to give an excuse. Elisha interrupts him and says, did not my heart go with you when you did what you did? I saw it all. God sees, he is personal. Your problem, my problem is often that we don't fear God. We think we can get away with that lust and no one's the worse for the wear. But you have violated God with that. We don't cry over our sin enough. We don't weep over our sin enough. We don't act like it's that big of a deal because God is some impersonal force dark side the light side and we just can't offend it no 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 you can't verse three with their wickedness they make their king glad and their princes with their lies so instead of repenting what did they do this is timely they took political routes they saw the suffering and they thought politics can handle it the princes can handle it verse four Here's, here's what they did. But they are all adulterers. They just act like they're on the king's team. They're phony. They're politicians talking to politicians, and you have no clue who's telling the truth. They are like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. All right, so here's another image. Here's image number two, like an overheated oven. Their passion for sin was like a fire in an oven. Now, in their way of doing it, they would take the wood and they would create coals. And at night, in order to cook bread in the morning, so they didn't have to get up at the break of dawn and build the fire again, they would do what they call bank the oven. They would take and they cover over the hot, red hot coals, they would cover them over with other soot and it would create a red hot thing. And so by the time the baker got up in the morning, the fire was ready. He didn't have to get up throughout the night. The oven was so hot, he could ignore it. And he's saying, you butter up the king and look for political answers, but down deep you are murderous, murderously on fire. You hide it, but you inside have lust, blood lust. Verse 5, on the day of our king, a festive occasion, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. Hosea here describes a, uh, a time of celebration, a palace celebration. During which the king and his officers get drunk. And this gives the king's opportunity, the king's enemies opportunity to kill them, kill him. The fuel for their fire was wine and it gave them the opportunity to murder and assassinate. Alcohol and sin often go together. He stretched, the king stretches out his hands. With the scoffer, he, he holds out his hands for a toast. Verse 6, but their hearts. They toast the king, but their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. They are planning assassination their anger smolders all night in the morning it burns like a flaming fire something is brewing all of them are like are hot like an oven and they consume their rulers assassination and remember Israel had five kings in 13 years and four kings were assassinated in 20 years how is Israel supposed to get a new king how is Israel supposed to get a new king to kill off the old one I mean, David was adamant that he wasn't going to do that. And he was a man after God's heart. How do you get a new king? A prophet is raised up. A prophet chooses the king through God's will. He anoints the king. And before that king takes a, a step of rulership, he requires that king to make a vow. That king takes an oath before God to honor him. And then the people, with that God honoring king, the people can honor the king. All right? And if that happens, the Hebrew says everything is hunky Right, That's in the Hebrew somewhere. hunky All right. Everything's good if the king would do that. But here, verse 7, all their kings have fallen. None of them call on me. Do you see that? Look down at your Bible. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. They, they don't want a king that way. They want king like the Central American countries get king. Just assassinate the one And get a new one. That's how Central America does does it. Here's the third image. A few more. The third simile is that of a half baked cake. Look at verse 8. A half baked cake. What could that mean? Ephraim mixes himself with the nations like a cake. So in the previous verses, it was political scheming. Now it's political alliances. They're not repentant. They scheme politically or they make political alliances. Ephraim has become like a cake, not turned these nomadic peoples of the east would cook their bread on hot rocks. And if you didn't turn it, if it didn't repent, one side would burn and the other side would be uncooked. If the dough wasn't turned, one side would be burned, the other side uncooked. Instead of remaining separate from the nations, they began to be mixed with the nations. And because of this Compromising political posture, the nation was burned by Assyria on one side and uncooked on the other. It's what we see on the talking heads for the last three days with the Trump presidency. It's all compromise, compromise. The other side, right, the democratic compromise, compromise, compromise. And when it comes to our relationship with God, the world screams at you. Ungodly churches and ungodly TV preachers scream at you, compromise, compromise. But nowhere in the realm of thought of God should we be half-baked Christians. Why would you think that it's appropriate to be half-baked? No turning, no repentance leads you to a place where you have to deal with the mob. You ride with outlaws, you die, you make alliances with the world. You are in too deep. C.S. Lewis had a great definition. He said, every sin is a good thing gone bad, right? Where you make an alliance, God says sexually, that's a good thing. Sexual intimacy is a good thing, but it's meant for monogamous, loyal, committed, mature people who have loyalty to each other, and then it's good. Outside of that, you take the fire out of that house, the fire burns. You take the fire out of the fireplace, it burns the house down, and that's what we see in our culture. Sin is taking a good thing and it ha- making it bad. It's a good thing gone bad. Money is a, is a good thing. We have to use it. We got to make it. It's, it's profitable to, to work hard and good, hard work pays off. But if you live for it, if you take a good thing and you make it bad and it becomes your God and it becomes your reason for living and it becomes your sense of security and your net, it becomes a bad thing. So here's the fourth image. A couple more. Continuing the theme of compromise, Hosea describes Israel as a graying man and not knowing it verse 9 strangers devour his strength and yet he does not know it gray hairs are sprinkled on him yet he does not know it he is old before his time and he is ignorant of it though the pride of israel testifies against him <laughs> the pride of israel is the israel's national glory which had greatly eroded since the time of solomon he says you don't recognize that you're bad you're a bad human. You don't recognize that that means you don't do that. That's what it means. Look at your life. Is life great? Seems like that's all I do in counseling these days is just hold up a mirror. If you're, if you're living right with God and everything's great, why is your life like that? Now that isn't, the gospel isn't, you know, if, if, if you follow God, everything's gonna go well and your life's gonna look successful. But I guarantee you, A life of bad relationships and bad finances and bad habits. That is a telltale sign that something is off. The pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God. One person said it this way, men will not gravitate towards a system of thought that condemns them. We gravitate towards systems of thought that um, assist us, that there's no accountability Your pride testifies against you now, nor have they sought him for all of this. They don't seek him because there's accountability. By mixing with the nations and ignoring the Lord, uh, the, the nation was secretly losing her strength. But in her pride, she couldn't admit it. This is the tragedy of so many undetected losses. This is Samson, right? He made this mistake. So did the church of Laodicea. Israel and her political strategy, it was failing, and she didn't even know it. To quote that great theologian of our day, Dr. Phil, I love how, I'm not crazy about everything he says, but I love this phrase. He says, how's that working for you? It's Kind of what he's saying here. All right, number five, here's the fifth. In their political policies, the Israelites were like silly doves. Verse 11, so Ephraim became like a silly dove without sense. They're mad you ever dove hunted, dove hunt, you, you know that they flick from mesquite tree to mesquite tree. They go crazy. The first thing they do, verse 11, they call to Egypt, then they go to Assyria. They're here and they're, they're fly, flying back and forth from this tree to that tree. First they turn to the Democrats, then they turn to the Republicans, then they turn back to the Democrats, and they turn to the Republicans. God says some trust in horses, some in chariots, some in Clintons, some in Trumps but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You're a silly dove. And that isn't how it's supposed to be. How's that working for you? You know, this is why every four years it seems like we look to the solution to our American problems coming out of D.C. Or we look in our culture, um, we're so fascinated by extraterrestrials. A new movie came out Friday called Encounter and it got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes which I don't, I've never heard of a movie getting 100%. I haven't seen it, but it's about E.T. Looking to outer space to solve all of our problems. I've seen all those movies. The E.T.'s eat you, by the way. Every movie, they, they devout, they eat you, All right, Just spoiler, I know. All right, so this has been the news all week. Silly doves, verse 12. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I'm gonna catch them. They're flying here and there. I'm going to catch them in my net. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly, the report. God is in control of all the nations, but his people would not obey him. He can't control his own nation that should obey them by will. The Jews would trade with other nations, and they would compromise, and that was what he didn't want. Here's the final image. Here's the final image. The final image is that of a faulty bow. Because Cod could not depend on Israel to be faithful. She could not be his trusty warhorse to ride into battle. And maybe that's why in your life, God, you want him to use you. I prayed this morning, I want more significance in my life. I want to be used more. That's a scary prayer. There's three very scary prayers. The God guide me prayer, because he might tell me to go somewhere I don't want to go. Use me prayer. He might use me in a way I don't want to be used because of whatever, pride, prejudice, something. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go to that person. Don't use me there. Use me here. Use me in my little place. I don't want to be used over there. And then one of the other most scary, dangerous prayers you could pray is the cleanse me prayer. Cleanse me so I can be used, so I can be guided. I think we start with that. But He doesn't want to put a Band-Aid on a bleeding artery. He doesn't want to put suntan lotion on a tumor. He wants to dig down deep in drastic surgery. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They change my word. Where there's there's no longer any merit in what I say because they skew it. Can that happen to a nation? Where they say, well, God never said that. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from their hearts, oh yes, when they well on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They, they, they don't cry because of the cause of sin. They're crying because of the, they are crying because of the cause of sin. No, they aren't crying because, of the, they're crying because of the effect of sin. They turn away from me because of the, the cause, the, the effect, not the cause. They, they just are upset over the danger and the lack of happiness. They don't want Holiness. Although I train them and strengthen their arms, I, all, I, everything they have as a nation came from me, but they devise evil against me. Verse 16, final verse. They turn, but not upward. They turn everywhere like a silly dove, but they don't turn upward. The word here for upward is really close to the word most high. They don't turn to the most high. The idea here is they are like a deceitful bow. They are not sighted in. Rick, you hunt, bow hunt a lot. You always got to sight in that bow every year. Every year you come out with that new gun, you got to re it in. You can't trust it. If you can't trust it, you're not going to shoot with it. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. You are answering back at me. You're talking back to me. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. God had called Israel. He had trained them. So they should have hit the target. But here they are... They could not win the battle. They are in, as a nation, they are in failure mode. You know, when a, when a nation gets rid of their Bible and starts saying things that God never said, they have no answers. They have no real answers. When, when a culture gets rid of the Bible, they have no answer. There's no answer for what's right and wrong. There's no answer for what is marriage or not marriage. There's no answer for what it means to be a man or be a woman. There's no answer. No answer for what it means to have death. And the glory of death having eternal life, there's no answer for rescue, there's no answer for life. It is great to have a Bible. It is great to have a word from God where he goes on record in pen and paper and says, thus saith the Lord. 1,400 times in scripture, thus saith the Lord. You can depend on it, it's great. Jonah is a great example of a faulty bow. In chapel in in Moby Dick, the book, Moby Dick, uh, Father Mapple said this in that book. I love it. He said, and here shipmates is true and faithful repentance, not clamorous for pardon, but grateful for punishment. And how pleasing to God with this conduct in Jonah and shown in the eventual deliverance of him from the sea and the well. Jonah praises God for the well. Did you know that? Have you read that story? We're gonna study it here next year. We're gonna study Jonah. Jonah does not see the well as a beatdown. he sees the well as a deliverance. Shipmates, I do not place Jonah before you to be copied for his sins, but I do place him before you as a model for repentance. Sin not, but if you do, take heed to repent of it like Jonah. Can't use you otherwise, you're a faulty bow. So review these images. Take inventory of your devotion to God. How lasting is your devotion? How deep? How strong is it? How serious is it? How dependable are you in your devotion to God? And let me end by saying, buster, you better repent. That was a phrase used by a seminary past professor a few years back. He was in Nevada. Normally, he's a reserved professor. I heard this story, true story. He was normally pretty reserved, but he was preaching on Casual repentance versus deep repentance. And at the end of it, he said, you need to repent and turn from your sin. And he said, Buster, if you are here and your heart is not right, come, and there's an altar call, come down here and get right with God. Buster, you better do it. And then the church pastor of the church he was visiting and the professor went down and a little nine-year-old boy came up. He said, hi, my name's Buster and I'm ready to get right with God. Can you say that? I'm ready. I'm ready to stop playing with God. I'm ready to stop tipping God. I'm ready to stop having a casual relationship with the God who did everything so that it wouldn't be casual. I'm ready to say yes to his divine proposal to be married to me. I wanna be his lover. I want my colors to shine true. I don't want to play. Can you say that? Are you ready to get right with God? Can that be the day today for you? Jason White, I ask you to pray for us. Can you lead us in a prayer of corporate repentance and that it can be a prayer that all can pray in their hearts to stop playing with God, fear him, but yet see his love? You are worse off than you thought but you are more loved than you ever dared hope for. We started with love, we end with love. God doesn't want a casual dating relationship with you. He wants to be married to you. Jason, amen, amen. Go be the church, go be the church. God bless.